So in the book of Revelation, we're given a vision of worship. John of Patmos, who's exiled there on that island, he stands in the shadow of the Roman Empire and all of its military might and all of its worship of the gods and even the emperor himself. John lived in a world that was dominated by what's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that was ushered in by Roman governance. But there in the midst of all that Roman power, John has a vision. He gets caught up in a vision of the heavenly throne room, a vision of worship. And what we find in Revelation 4 and 5 is a series of concentric circles. On the outside are the myriads of angels and the great multitude of the saints. And as you move toward the middle, you have the 24 elders casting down their golden crowns. You have the uh, four living creatures. And there at the center is the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. The lamb whom we just remembered at the table. And what John has given is really an answer to a question that's burning on the hearts of those seven churches there in Asia Minor. And I think it's a question that's burning on the hearts of many people here today. Who's in charge? Who is in charge of things? We think about the situation of those those churches in Revelation. On the ground, those Christians, many of them suffering for their confession, were probably asking that question. Who is really in charge? But in Revelation 4 and 5, John and his churches... And 2,000 years later, Brentwood Oaks Church of Christ, as we are overhearing this and reading about this vision, we are reminded that true peace in this world, uh, true power over world affairs, uh, the true object of our worship is there at the center. It is God alone. He is the center of our being. He is the center of our focus in this world. This is what John writes in Revelation 5, verses 13 and 14. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. When we gather in an assembly, when we worship together, that really extends beyond these walls. Really what we're doing is we're joining into something that is already happening. We're joining in with the heavenly worship. We're joining in with our brothers and sisters all over the world, lifting up their praise and adoration and thanksgiving to the center of our faith. And worship is really a gift Everybody worships something. We are worshiping creatures. We have been wired for worship, which is why this table and this gathering is so important. If we don't have our vision recalibrated week after week, day after day, well, something or someone is going to fill that void and will be robbed of the true source of life, peace, and salvation in this world. So the challenge before us weekly and even daily, is to keep our eyes fixed on the center, especially in a world where there are all these different voices, there are all these different gods who are vying for the affections of our hearts. 
We live in a world of so many distractions. And one of the ways that we keep focus is through prayer, through a rhythm of prayer. But how do we pray? Well, that was a question on the disciples' hearts in Luke chapter 11. That was a question, no doubt, on the, the disciples' hearts there listening in on the greatest sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mountainside there in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And as we seek renewal this year, I want to start off 2023 by focusing on worshiping God. And to do this, we're going to focus on prayer. Specifically, the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples to pray. Uh, The prayer that we say periodically here at Brentwood Oaks. Uh, The prayer that many of you say daily. What's called the Lord's Prayer. Now, I really didn't engage with the Lord's Prayer until I went to seminary and really started at this church. I grew up in a church maybe like some of you, and this may sound strange to some of you coming from different faith traditions, but we didn't say the Lord's Prayer growing up for various reasons that I'll get into in the weeks to come. My only history with the Lord's Prayer was right after a football game, after we played a game, after hearing many obscenities shouted on the field, After seeking to inflict pain on our opponent, we would gather in the middle of the field, huffing and puffing, and we would say the Lord's Prayer together. And then several of the players would head down to the river for a party that was completely disconnected from anything that we just uttered from our lips. But as I engage with this prayer of Jesus through the years, I found these words to not only be life-giving, but also to give shape to my own prayer life. And as we think about worship, as we think about maintaining our focus on the only one who is truly worthy to receive praise, I'd like to spend the next couple of months talking about this prayer, line by line. For some, this might be an introduction to this rich tapestry of prayer that has blessed millions of people through the centuries. For others, these sermons will serve as a reminder of why these words are so precious to the people of God. And what I want to do this morning is I want to offer three short reflections on three words. Words that form the beginning of this prayer, the invocation. The first word is easy to gloss over, but it gives us much to think about when we recite these words of Jesus. And that word is our, O-U-R, our. Notice Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to pray, my Father in heaven. No, he instructs his disciples to say, our Father in heaven. Now automatically this begins to chip away at our modern mindset. We are products of the West here in America. We are products of the Enlightenment and I think for Americans especially, it's hard to step outside of ourselves. We live in such a culture that is individualistic in nature. It's like the old story, the old image of the fish who's swimming in the ocean, and he passes by another fish, and he says, how's the water? And the other fish says, what's water? Our individual rights, our individual freedoms, we are swimming in it. It's so hard to see. No, I'm not against individual rights and freedoms by any stretch. 
But the opening of the Lord's Prayer, I think, is especially challenging to us to remind us that really, I don't come to the garden alone, as the old hymn says, as much as I love that hymn. Or another hymn, it never really is just my God and I. That's what that last series in the fall was all about. Can't live without them and all those different types of relationships that we work through. We are personal beings because we are made in the image of a personal God. Uh, So on the one hand, we are wired for worship. On the other hand, we are wired for relationship. We are wired for connection. We are the most of who we are called to be whenever we are connected to others. We are not islands unto ourselves. So this first word is so crucial for shaping our prayers because the word our enlarges our vision. We are part of something bigger than ourselves whenever we come into prayer. Uh, There's a vertical component to our prayer. We are individuals. We have individual needs. We sang a song earlier of how we are in need of God's grace. We have these trials that we are working through as individuals. In Scripture, there are plenty of prayers, plenty of psalms that are individual. So think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But the opening of the Lord's Prayer reminds us that there's a horizontal component as well. We are connected to others. We live in community with others when we come to the Lord. We try to balance this out in our singing. If you look at the front of your order of worship and kind of scan those songs, you'll find songs that have I, me, and my in them. What can wash away my sin? But we also, and this is on purpose, we have songs that have we, us, and our. So the Lord's Prayer is really a gift to the people of the West That even when we go to our closets, we're not really alone. We bring the community with us in our prayers. The second word worthy of our our attention is the word Father. The word Father. And of course, this conjures up all kinds of images. Uh, Certainly, this would be shaped to some degree by our earthly fathers for good or ill. Uh, This is problematic because there is no such thing as a perfect earthly father. I wish I had some mulligans. Uh, There are some moments that I wish I could take back as a father. But the reality of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of fatherhood really speaks to the importance of finding shape for that image of God as father from Scripture itself, from what God has revealed in Scripture to us. That's the place to go to get the full picture of God as father. And one verse that was pointed out to me this week in one of my readings actually goes to the Old Testament. There are plenty of places in the Old Testament where God is our father. But it's the first place where we get this imagery of father and son, and it's found in the Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, if you want to write that down. Exodus 4, 21 through 23 is God giving instructions to Moses after the burning bush to go and confront Pharaoh. And well, this is what the Lord says to Moses. When you go back to Egypt, God says, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. 
Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may worship me or that he may serve me. Isn't it interesting in that first self-revelation of God and a father-son relationship, it's in the context of the exodus. His son, the people, the Hebrew people, is in desperate need. They are slaves in Egypt and they cry out in their anguish and their, their oppression and their back-breaking work. And God, their father, hears their cries at the end of Exodus chapter 2. He hears their cries. He sees their plight. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, and he knows. He knows what's happening. God as Father is not one who is aloof from suffering or is disengaged. He's not the God that abandons. God the Father draws near to the people. This is the God of the Exodus. This is the God of rescue. This is the God of redemption. There are so many other places, certainly in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament where God is Father, and you get other angles of this and, and other layers. But as we enter into the Lord's Prayer, Jesus refers to God as Father. There's an intimacy in that word. Behind that is that Aramaic word, Abba. What God calls, what Jesus calls God there in the Garden of Gethsemane, what what Paul tells us, we cry out to God by the power of the Spirit as His adopted children. Abba, God is our Abba, our Father. God is not some abstract concept. God is our Father, protector, promise keeper, redeemer. But a third word, the third word is heaven. Our Father in heaven. What questions do you have about that word heaven? I have two questions. Actually, I have a lot more than two questions about heaven. But I want to highlight two questions. The first one is, what is heaven? For many of us, that conjures up in our minds images of the life to come, uh, maybe some songs that we sing, the land of cloudless day, the city four square, the habitation built by the living God, the streets of gold, the pearly gate. There's a future element to that word, although technically those descriptions really come from Peter and John and even Isaiah in the Old Testament describing the life to come, the new heaven and the new earth. But what is heaven? Heaven is the place where God dwells. Heaven is that sphere where God's will is carried out perfectly. But for our purpose this morning with the Lord's Prayer, when we say our Father in heaven, we're talking about the God who is beyond us, the God who is beyond our vision, the God who transcends us. When we go to God in prayer, we are praying to one who transcends us. That's good news, by the way. So if that word Father communicates great intimacy, 
The word heaven reminds us that God is otherworldly, beyond nature, supernatural. Heaven is the place where God dwells. But a second question related to this, we have to go to San Angelo, Texas. We have to go to the group who grew up there, the Los Lonely Boys, who sing a song called Heaven. One of my favorite songs, by the way. There's a refrain that they ask over and over again in this song. How far is heaven? How far is heaven? Maybe another way to ask that is where is heaven? We're going to get a vision tonight of the heavens that Paul Linus is going to bring to us. Where is heaven? I don't have a precise answer for that. It does make the imagination go wild, but as we close this morning, I want to quote Roger McCallum, who I think was quoting our good friend N.T. Wright, when he says this, and I heard him say this in several funerals, and I grabbed a hold of it, the veil between heaven and earth is very thin. The veil between heaven and earth is very thin. Now that That should give us some things to think about, maybe even challenges us to think about heaven in a different way. We know in Scripture there are many places where there seems to be some holes in that veil where heaven and earth meet together. We think about the burning bush, Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, the gentle whisper there at Mount Horeb. We think of those hot spots for God's presence, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later on in the temple and out in the wilderness, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. We think of the ultimate place where heaven and earth meet in the suffering servant, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ and His people, the church, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are these places where heaven and earth meet, where the divine meets the physical, which begs all kinds of questions, like, what's really going on when we pray? What's happening there? How far is heaven whenever we say, our Father in heaven? It might be nearer than you think. The God who is so high above us, the God who transcends us, is also the God who meets us. The God who meets us in worship. The God who meets us in our closets in prayer. Well, there's a lot to think about with those three words. Our Father. Heaven. And truth be told, we laughably have not even scratched the surface and perhaps there's some things that have been said that have spurred your thinking and worthy of further exploration. But the Lord's Prayer is a gift and especially this invocation in shaping our prayer and shaping our, our view of who God is. It adds layers to God's identity that goes deep into Israel's history and we'll see that in the weeks to come. But this is a prayer that continues to shape our thinking here at Brentwood Oaks and people all over the world. So I'll leave us with this. In 2023, if you're looking to get back into a rhythm of worship and a rhythm of prayer, 
I'm confident that the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, the Lord's Prayer, will prove to be a life-giving companion as we fix our eyes and our gaze on the center of our faith, the center of our worship. Our Father is waiting to hear from us. Well, we have the invitation this morning to go to our Father in prayer. Uh, We're going to sing a song now that ties our Father God to our worship, worship that certainly takes place here, but continues in the way that we live our lives. And we need help with our worship. And so this prayer is an invitation to surrender even more to God and ask Him for His help in our daily walk with Him. So if you would, and you would like to respond to the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ and the God who draws near to the brokenhearted, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.